Well, welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Um, In my last podcast, um, I addressed the issue of inclusivism and some of the debates that are surrounding um, on Facebook, on social media, between certain podcasts. And I said I would have a guest on uh, the next podcast. And so I've invited Drew Mary to be on this podcast to discuss this topic. So welcome to the podcast, Drew. Hey, thank you for having me on, Sean. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm so thankful that we're doing this again. We've done a couple of podcasts together. I've been on your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast even before we, before we move on. Uh, sure. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Um, our podcast is called According to Christ, and I run that along with Dale Stenberg. We are the original founders of it, and but recently uh, his brother um, also joined us, and so he he uh, joins us on the podcast uh, every now and then when he's able. And the purpose of our podcast is to pro- provide a Christ-centered and exegetical discussion uh, from a Reformed perspective. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the work you guys do. Um, very, very informative, uh, very thoughtful and um, exegetical. So you guys are doing a great job there. Well, we're going to talk about inclusivism, exclusivism, um, and we're going to particularly respond to um, some comments made by Leighton Flowers. And I, I want to be fair to Leighton uh, because I think that in the blogosphere, in Facebook, in social media, he, he has had some unfair Um, things said about his view. Um, I know he's kind of worked double time, it seems like, to clarify his views. Um, It's been a hot topic recently, and so I want to be fair to Leighton. We want him to be able to respond to our um, assertions, our questions, uh, because I think this is an important topic, and uh, definitions are important, uh, clarifications are important, and so um, I do want to acknowledge from the very beginning that I do think there has been some maybe some unfair categorization of Leighton, and I, and I want to be fair to him. And so, um, Drew, do you have anything to say about that before we start? Uh, no, not not particularly, but I, I do agree that I think he has been unfairly criticized. Um, that being said, I, I think there are proper criti- uh, criticisms for some of the things that Layton Flowers has said, and we want to kind of avoid the unnecessary uh, criticisms and focus on what really matters, focus on the biblical text and the uh, theological implications of some of the things that he's asserted. That's good. So let's just maybe start with this topic of exclusivism versus inclusivism. And, and Drew, kind of share why this is important to you or how you got interested in this or you know, what, what drew you into this discussion. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, story. I first got uh, into this whole debate over exclusivism versus inclusivism uh, a number of years ago during school. Um, I was doing, uh, I I believe this was back at Liberty, and um, I was doing the distance learning education. And so we had to read through uh, some books. One of them uh, was, I believe, called Across the Spectrum. And uh, so it presents each chapter is devoted to a different uh, doctrinal or theological discussion, and you have uh, multiple views presented. And of course, one of those chapters was on uh, the destiny of of the unevangelized, and so that's when I first got introduced to it. And during that time, I was surprised to find out that uh, many of my fellow students, you know, who we who I had to engage with discussion on discussion boards, um, actually held to the exclusivist position. And uh, I had also at that time read uh, Ronald Nash's book, "Is Jesus the Only Savior." Um, And then over time, I've also listened to uh, debates, for example, between James White and Sanders on the same uh, subject. Uh, And uh, but back during school, during uh, that whole discussion that we had to do on this debate, uh, part of the assignment was we had to provide a 300 word discussion board uh, post. And because I saw this as such an important discussion that I actually ended up writing over 2,000 words. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't recall many people reading my post. They probably saw, oh, that's a long post. I'm not going to read that. Um, but nonetheless, I saw it as an important issue. And um, so when all of this started becoming 
popular again uh, with Leighton Flowers and people engaging him. Um, I obviously saw this as an important opportunity to seek clarification. Well, very good. I think this whole thing, if I remember, started with uh, the death of Billy Graham and some comments made by Billy Graham when he was interviewed on Robert Schuler's program. I'm not sure if that was back in the 90s or when it was. And so there's been some um, labels that supposedly Billy Graham was a pluralist. And obviously, I don't believe that. And so I think initially Leighton Flowers addressed the issue of was Billy Graham a pluralist? And then other podcasts kind of came in. And you and I have been in some Facebook discussions on different groups that we're in. Um, and so I, I think it's an important topic to talk about. One of the things I want to bring up before we even start, two things, and it's more to set the context. I think it's important that we understand the, the continuity and the discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. Because oftentimes what will be brought up is that, you know, if God did it one way in the Old Testament, He most surely will do it in the New Testament, and they'll give examples of Job and Rahab and others. And, and, and I think probably the best um, descriptions I got was from um, Artaxerdia, who, who I'm friends with, who's the pastor um, at Trinity Church in Portland. Um, and one time I heard him talk about, you know, dispensationalists put a brick wall between the Old and New Testament in that there is, you know, th- there's no... There's no continuity. It's, you know, the old, old dispensation, God did things differently, brick wall between the Old Testament and New Testament. He said it's not a brick wall dispensationalism, but he said it's, it's also not just wide open to where there's, there's no, um, you know, discontinuity at all. He says it's more like a picket fence. There are some things that transfer between Old Testament and New Testament, the way that God does things um, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so what I think we need to understand is when we're, when we're asking this question, what is the fate of those who've never heard, we're not asking that question, how did God save Old Testament believers? Th- that's a different question. I think the question that we're faced with now is on this side of the cross, this side of the apostolic establishment of the church in the book of Acts, the closed canon of scripture. The question on on, on our plate today is, what is the destiny or what is the eternal fate of those who've never heard the gospel? That's the specific question. Now, would would you agree with that, that that's the question, not necessarily how did God save people in the Old Testament? That seems like there's two different questions there. Yes, I, uh, I definitely do think that is the specific question that we are seeking to uh, answer and articulate. And but but this whole idea of going back to the Old Testament saints, raising them as examples for a supposedly the inclusivist view, um, I, I think. I think it introduces some confusion. I think it actually blurs the line between general and special re- revelation. Uh, for example, um, in uh, in a recent video, Leighton Flowers was responding to John MacArthur on Romans 1. And in that video, uh, MacArthur was talking about how all of mankind continually suppresses general revelation, how God uh, has allowed the nations to go their own way, that they uh, corrupt general revelation, they override it and suppress it. Uh, this could be found around the 40-minute mark. Uh, but then Flowers responds, did Job corrupt it? Did Job override it? Did Job suppress it? What about Enoch? What about Simeon or Cornelius? I'm not saying that they weren't sinless or unrighteous, but they were declared righteous because they lived by faith. Um and again, Flowers seems to confuse general uh, general and special revelation. So why, why does he think that Job, for example, uh, came to God on the basis of general revelation? That's the implication of, of Flowers' response there, because that's what MacArthur was talking about, is general revelation. And in another video, uh, based on something that Leighton Flowers said in relation to Cornelius, the clear implication is that he thinks... Special revelation is something that only it started to exist at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't, I don't think he would say that, but based on the way he's articulated some of these things, that seems to be the implication of what he's saying, that the Old Testament saints, they came to faith through general revelation, but that's not, that's not the case. We see the gospel in the garden 
In Genesis 3, 15 and 21, we see the gospel given uh, by way of promise and shadow and type. And so, again, going back to this point you're making, we have to recognize the uh, redemptive historical nature of the scriptures and see how things um, progress throughout redemptive history. And now we're dealing with the fullest revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's 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 a good word, and maybe for our listeners, just because we're throwing out terms, special revelation, general revelation. I think we internally know what we mean by those terms, but maybe for those that this is the first time they're listening to this podcast, and, and we throw out these terms, let's let's just define terms. What is the difference between general revelation and special revelation? Sure. Yeah, uh, general revelation is basically creation. And like we ourselves are general revelation, uh, conscience, you know, we have the law written on our hearts. So actually a, a place I love to go is Genesis or not Genesis, but uh, Psalm 19. So here's a good place to where we see both general and special revelation. So the first six verses of Psalm 19 deals with general revelation. We see that um, the creation declares the glory of God, but it's not a word revelation. It's not like the mountains literally proclaim or speak the glory of God. It's a general revelation. And in fact, in that, in that section of Psalm 19, um, the word Elohim is used, God, which is a more generic way of referring to God. It could actually be used of the false gods. And we also see in that uh, those verses in Psalm 19, that there's no uh, redemptive nature to general revelation. There's no redemptive quality that's mentioned regarding uh, general revelation there. But then in the second half of Psalm 19, we have special revelation where it talks about the Word of God, the law of God. And, and, we, and in that section, God's covenant name is used, Yahweh. And also, uh, redemptive uh, benefits are communicated regarding that special revelation. It makes us wise, for example. So that, in essence, is general and special revelation. General revelation is general because it's something that is accessible to all of humanity. And general revelation has existed from the time of creation, before the fall. And this is a point that I think we really have to recognize because I've heard uh, inclusivists raise this objection. I've heard Flowers raise this objection in his response to John MacArthur, um, where, where he basically said, why would God send enough revelation to uh, condemn people but not save them? And again, this was raised in the context of of John MacArthur saying that general revelation is not sufficient to save but only to condemn. So Flowers, I think, was missing the point there. It's not that God has to send general revelation. It's already there. It's everywhere. We're, we're all around it. We ourselves are general revelation. Um, special revelation, on the other hand, is post-fall, and it, it entails uh, the redemptive message of God in and through Jesus Christ. Very good. That's a good. That's a good explanation. Well, let's talk about taxonomy and what we mean by taxonomy is how do we um, basically delineate between the different views that are out there? Because that seems to be one of the points of contention. Is let's you know can we agree upon definitions? Because depending on historical definitions, um, you know, in, in Layton's most recent uh, YouTube clip, you know, he's 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 tried you know I think pretty good to give some some taxonomy to help understand. Um, so what I like to do is, I mean, for the sake of simplicity, I, I think there's probably more than this, but let's just narrow it down to seven. And these are nothing that I came up with on my own. It actually comes from a very good book uh, by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson called Faith Comes by Hearing, A Response to Inclusivism. Uh, obviously, these guys, and it's, it's produced by... Um, InterVarsity Press Academic. Um, and obviously these men are in the Reformed tradition, and so they're going to come from that aspect. But they're scholars, and I think they've given a pretty good 
um, taxonomy. So let me just give these seven definitions, these working definitions, and hopefully uh, this will help clarify you know, some of the, the terminology and, and maybe some of the confusion. So the first one we would say is gospel exclusivism. Um, this is the view I think that both of us hold to. I think it's the traditional Reformed view. Um, and that states, gospel exclusivism states that a sinner must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they must place conscious faith in Christ. Um, they have to know who Jesus is. They have to hear the gospel. They have to personally and consciously place faith in Christ alone. That's gospel exclusivism. Okay, number two, special revelation exclusivism. Um, this basically says, yes, sinners must hear the gospel and be saved, but there's a caveat. In rare cases, God may sovereignly choose to send to an elect person, a person who's been unconditionally chosen before the foundation of the world, God may choose to send that person a special revelation in a very extraordinary way, uh, through a dream, through a vision, through a miracle, through an angelic message. That's rare. That's not the normal operating way God does it, but God will ensure that an elect person does receive special revelation through some extraordinary way. So those are the two views of exclusivism. Number three, agnosticism. This is basically an argument that says, you know, we really can't know. Uh, the Bible's silent on this. We shouldn't speculate. Um, you, you know, you can take your best guess, but the best approach to this is to say, we really don't know. And I think this was John Stott and J.I. Packer's view is, you know, we really, we really don't know the answer to this. Um, and so that's kind of a, <laughs> the easy way out um, response. Uh, all right, so number four, general revelation inclusivism. Okay, general revelation inclusivism. Sinners can respond to faith in God, not necessarily Christ, but to God through general revelation. I th think this would be the position that William Lane Craig holds to, if I'm not mistaken. Would you agree with that, general revelation inclusivism? Yeah, that does seem to be what he, based on what little I've heard, William Lane Craig, that does seem where he would, where he would fall. Yeah, general revelation inclusivism. They would say, you know, Sinners are saved through the merits of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ, because I want to fairly represent William Lane Craig. He, he's not a pluralist. He believes that it's through the merits of Christ, through the blood of Christ, but that a person doesn't necessarily have to have conscious faith in Christ alone, but through their response to general revelation, uh, they can be saved. In other words, general revelation is sufficient to lead a person to salvation through Christ, whether they have conscious faith in Him or not. Um, that's general revelation inclusivism. Um, the, the sixth view is an interesting view, post-mortem evangelism. Um, sinners will have an opportunity after death to respond to Christ. Um, I think Jerry Walls and others believe in this view. Um, the, the next one's universalism. Everyone will ultimately be saved. And then the last view is pluralism. Uh, many will experience salvation as they understand it because of their sincerity or practice of their particular religion. You know, all religions are, valid, are equally valid. And so, you know, pluralism basically states that, you know, if you're a sincere Buddhist and you adhere to the tenets of Buddhism, um, you can be saved and experience eternal life based upon your sincerity to that particular religion. And we want to be fair to Leighton Flowers because I think he... He, he fairly said this. He's not a pluralist. Billy Graham's not a pluralist. William Lane Craig's not a pluralist. Pluralism states that sinners are saved apart from Christ through their particular religion that may not have anything to do with, with Christianity. Whereas, you know, general revelation inclusivists would say you're saved through Christ. Christ is the only way. You just don't have access or you, you've not responded to special revelation, you've responded or lived up to the light of, of general revelation. So I think those are seven categories that have historically been uh, discussed. And so, you know, maybe you can follow up on that, Drew, or interact, or, you know, do you agree with that? Do you feel like those are, you know, a good way to delineate the differences? Yeah, I mean, obviously in a succinct uh, fashion, I'm sure you'd find some people who would want to maybe add some more or provide qualifications, but I think that provides a good uh, summary of the 
you know, typical views out there. I think we would probably say that the last two uh, there you gave would be heretical views, uh, where some of the other ones we would say, well, they're not heretical, but we don't believe they're biblical. Uh, you know, they may be dangerous. And then, of course, you know, we would, you know, hold to the first one. Yeah. And I think that's good because, I mean, obviously, when you start throwing out so-and-so's a heretic or so-and-so's heretical, we've got to be real careful when we use that terminology. Um, obviously, universalism would be heretical. We, we, we have to deny universalism. Pluralism, you have to deny based upon John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12. You know, postmortem evangelism, I would personally consider that to be heretical because I don't see any biblical warrant for it. Um, I think it's a, a speculation um, and so I think it's good to make a distinction between something that's flat out heretical or something that's sub-biblical or something that is mysterious, that's not given explicit teaching in Scripture, and you come up with a speculative theory. Um, and so I just think we need to be careful when we throw out labels like so-and-so is a heretic because they believe such and such. Um, William Lane Craig, I would not call a heretic. He believes Jesus is the only way. He believes salvation by Christ alone. He just takes a little bit more, um, what I would consider liberal view on, you know, I would call him a general revelation inclusivist in that, you know, based upon his own statements. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe it would be a good point at this time, since you gave that taxonomy there. Um, I want to raise uh, something that Flowers said again in that video in response to John MacArthur, and um, you know, provide my thoughts on it and maybe get your thoughts on it too, because I think this this is a good example of where I think Flowers has uh, demonstrated some confusion on the matter. Um, so, again, MacArthur in this video uh, was was stating the the concept of general revelation from from Romans one and, and communicating that. Um, general revelation is not sufficient for salvation. And after asserting that, Flowers responds by saying, if left to their own, that's true, because no one can be saved apart from the blood of Christ. But God did not send Christ to die, and therefore, or sorry, but God did send Christ to die, and therefore they can be saved. People aren't even saved through special revelation. People aren't saved by any revelation. They're saved by grace through faith, and listen to this, in whatever revelation they've been given. And then, so I, there's, there's, I think, two main problems I find in this statement. First of all, it's a confusion or misunderstanding of what we mean when we say that general revelation is insufficient. We're not saying that revelation is the ground of our salvation. Um, the idea is, or the, the matter at hand is what is communicated in and through revelation. Does general revelation communicate the redemptive message? Does it communicate the gospel? The answer to that is no. And must one um, come in contact with with the gospel and repent and believe in the gospel if they are to be saved? The answer is yes. Therefore, general revelation is not sufficient for salvation. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need the gospel. We're not saying revelation is the ground of our salvation. So uh, I see Flowers' response there as really misunderstanding uh, MacArthur's point. Um, and then also you have where he says, we're saved by grace through faith in whatever revelation uh, they've been given, which is very confusing to me and seems to um, suggest, well, I mean, again, it could be taken a number of different ways. I mean, it could potentially open up the gate for a pluralistic viewpoint. Obviously, Flowers doesn't embrace that. He would completely uh, deny and disassociate uh, from it, which is good. But I see some some problems uh, with the way that he has attempted to articulate his position. And one comes in this statement here where he says, in whatever revelation they've been given. So are, are people saved through general revelation? If that's all the revelation they've been given is a question I would want to ask um, of Flowers. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the issue comes into play on sola fide, solus Christus, sola gratia, the you know, the, the solas that we talk about in the Reformation, because I, you know, what that was confusing to me as well, because it, you know, in our understanding, the Reformed understanding, faith is not the ground of our salvation. 
faith is the instrument through which we grab on to Christ as the object of our salvation. And so there's got to be a direct object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ alone. And so we are not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ alone. We're saved through faith, and that faith is a gift that God gives us. But I think there's a confusion there on the nature of saving faith, uh, the object of our faith. Um, in, in, in traditional reform categories like, you know, solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, it seems that's, that's all kind of been jumbled up there. Um, and one thing I want to bring up too is in an earlier podcast, I can't remember if it was the one responding to MacArthur, um, and this is what I think initially got Leighton Flowers into a little bit of trouble because of his lack of clarity on what is the gospel. And I want to quote exactly what he said. He said, I wanted to give some clarity. This is quoting him. I wanted to give some clarity because people are asking a few honest questions about that. How do you explain those things with regard to those who don't hear the specific news about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection? Some people have called that in itself the gospel. Now, the gospel is more generally speaking the news that God is good and that he desires mercy over justice, that he desires to show mercy, that he's a good God, and that if you believe in the Lord, you will be saved. That's the basis of the gospel. That is a very confusing statement. That is a truncated view of the gospel. And, and, and this is a question I would have for Leighton, and, and I want him to clarify that statement. I would like for Leighton to give a clear, what, what he understands to be a clear presentation of the gospel. Um, did not Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 that it, you know the gospel we received is, you know, Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Um, is the gospel generically, there's a good God out there. Um, he, he wants you, you know, he desires to show mercy. If you believe in this God, you'll be saved. Um, that sounds more like a general revelation belief in a generic God without the specifics of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the call to repent and believe. I want you to respond to that, Drew. Yeah, yeah well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. The only thing I would add is it's also a confusion of law and gospel because he has in that definition that God is good and he desires mercy. Um, what do you say? He desires mercy over sacrifice. That That's not gospel. That's law. So, what Flowers has done here is he's essentially, in his attempt to define the gospel, he's actually um, defined the law. And so that's a very troubling thing. And so when I first heard that, I was just utterly shocked in, in what I heard. The latter part of his definition is is fine, but again, as you said, it's very truncated, very vague, and it doesn't really, it's not full enough for uh, providing what we need in light of what he just said about God desiring mercy over sacrifice and presenting the law. That's fine if you want to um, present the law in defining the gospel so far as you clearly articulate the law is not the gospel, but we need to come to an understanding of the law that we have transgressed the law so that we may recognize our need for the gospel. And I just, I did not see flowers as making that clear distinction whatsoever. So Leighton, if you listen to this, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you will, um, could you hopefully um, either clarify that statement, explain that in more detail, um, help us to understand your viewpoint, help us to understand what you meant by that, uh, because I think it would be helpful to your listeners and also to everyone involved um, to maybe, I don't want to say exonerate, because maybe you feel like you didn't say anything that was confusing. But to us, it was confusing. I know there are a lot of people out in Facebook and social media that found it confusing. So I think it would be helpful to, to clarify that statement. Another question I have that, that was just kind of a subtle thing I've noticed, it seemed like as I listened to some of his YouTube and, and, and podcast after this, he, he kind of started using generic God language, believe in God, believe in God, and kind of switched from, you know, Christ alone to, to God. And I don't know if that was purposeful. Maybe it wasn't. Um, but the big, huge question I have in this whole thing is what does it mean to live up to whatever revelation you've received? Because um, that seems like, to me, law. 
are you are you being faithful? You know, because here's the thing that it's very distinct in Reformed theology that distinguishes us from Roman Catholicism, um, and that is the distinction between faith and faithfulness. That's a huge distinction in Reformed theology. We are saved by faith alone. We're not saved by faithfulness. Now, faithfulness comes as a result of our justification in our sanctification, but it almost sounds like if a person lives up to the light they've received, if a person um, is faithful with what they've been giving, you're saved by faithfulness, not saved by faith in Christ alone. I don't know what your thoughts are on that particular issue. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a wonderful distinction. And I, actually, I hadn't even thought of that distinction that you just presented of between faith and faithfulness. But you're, yeah, you're exactly right. Faithfulness does communicate um, the idea of obedience or of of law, being uh, obedient to law. Uh, but like you, I, I do have questions that I, I would like to get maybe some clear answers on regarding what does it look like for someone to... Um, respond to the light they have in some pagan culture. You know, that's something uh, Flowers keeps emphasizing a lot. You know, faithful with the light they've been given, God will give them more light. Well, what does it, I want to see some flesh put on those bones. What does it mean for, what does it look like for a pagan living in a pagan culture where, where there, there is no gospel, what does it look like for them uh, to, to be faithful to the light they've, they've been given? Especially since almost always, you know, in, in, in this context, they go back to, you know, the look at uh, Job or, or Melchizedek or Abraham or in the New Testament, Cornelius. But again, just taking Cornelius, for example, Cornelius wasn't a proselyte which is a Gentile convert to Judaism. He wasn't a proselyte because of general revelation. It's not like he looked up at the moon and stars and discerned Judaism and decided to become a follower of, of Judaism. No, he, he was a proselyte because of this special revelation of God's, of the Hebrew scriptures. So again, I see this oftentimes in, in listening to Flowers, I see him transition, kind of jump from a discussion of general revelation to, to special revelation without seemingly realizing he's, he's switching categories. He goes from one to the other and confuses them. Abraham was called out by God. God revealed himself to him. God gave him promises. He spoke his word to him. Abraham didn't discern uh, the truth in his pagan um, worship. In fact, we know that prior to the call, Abraham lived and worshiped in a, in a pagan society. But by God's grace, he called him out of that and, and called him to himself and gave him his word and his promises, the promise of the gospel. And Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so I don't see these examples that they keep referencing um, as supporting what it is they're attempting to argue. Yeah, let's talk about Abraham for a moment. I mean, he was in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us that he was a pagan. And if you go back and you do some study on Abraham, he, was, he and his family were probably moon worshipers. They worshiped the moon. And so um, nowhere in the scriptures do we see Abraham looked up at the moon and there was general revelation of this shining moon and he was thankful that there was a, a lunar calendar and that, um, you know, God provided his, his water for his crops. And therefore, because Abraham was faithful in his worship of the moon, God sent him more light by coming to him in special revelation. We, we don't find that. Actually, it's the exact opposite. God invaded his paganism with special revelation by appearing to him and speaking directly to him, um, you know, audibly with the covenant promises. And, and so, Again, the question becomes, okay, what does it actually look like? Your question earlier was, let's put some flesh and bones on this. And I've read some some responses that people would say, you know, what, what does it look like for a person to live up to the light? You know, I've, I've heard people and I've read people say, well, it's a general spirit of thankfulness. You know, a pagan looks up and, and they, they're thankful for the sun. They're thankful for the crops. They're thankful for the rain. Uh, they're thankful for the blessings and, and, and based upon their thankfulness, God quote-unquote, rewards that by giving them more light. 
Or I heard William Lane Craig says, you know, if there's a pagan out there that casts himself at the mercy of God and says, I'm a sinner, um, I need to know more about you, um, God rewards them with, with special revelation. The problem with that, in my opinion, is that Romans 1 teaches the exact opposite of that. Uh, Romans 1 seems to teach that all people have knowledge of general revelation, but they suppress that in unrighteousness, and th- th- it's not sufficient to save them. Um, and so an argument from silence to me is not helpful when we've got the clear explicit teachings from Romans 1 about the purpose of general revelation and what humans do to suppress that. And one thing that I think Leighton said in his critique of, of Romans 1, and I've heard other people say this um, in some of the pod, or in some of the Facebook discussions I have, is that one, one guy said to me, you misunderstand Romans 1, 18 and following because you believe that that describes all people, that all people you know, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's not a categorical statement of all people. Um, and my question is, well, then, then is there a third category of people? There's people who don't suppress the truth that are unrighteous? Uh, may, maybe interact with that. Because I think that in his critique, in Flowers' critique of Romans 1 of John MacArthur, he did argue that that does not describe all men from birth who are in a condition that they can only suppress the truth. <laughs> yes, and this I really think is... Uh where it all hinges. Um, this really is where I think much of the debate um, has resided and, and should reside. And obviously, we could spend a whole bunch of time on it. Um, but in short, what I would say is, what does Romans 1, 18 and onward communicate? Well, it starts off by saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Again, all throughout, starting from Romans 1, 18 and onward, there is nothing whatsoever communicated of a redemptive quality to general revelation. And this, of course, parallels what I mentioned earlier in Psalm 19, where, yes, you can discern certain things um, about the glory of God, but it's general revelation, and there's no redemptive quality associated with it. We see the same thing in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why? Because men suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So they're suppressing the knowledge of God, the knowledge that they have by their unrighteousness, by believing a lie, replacing the truth with a lie. And this actually uh, just uh, came to my mind. Um, Elsewhere, Leighton Flowers has brought up an illustration of uh, Muslims, you know, like, well, how is it that people, you know, so people can believe the lie of the Quran, but they can't believe the truth of the gospel, why is that? How does that make sense? If they can believe the lie of the Quran, they should be able to also believe the truth of the gospel. And this is actually proving our point more than it's proving his, because that's precisely our point, is that um, fallen humanity who is separated from God, who is hostile in mind to God, suppresses that truth and chooses to believe the lie rather than the truth, apart from the sovereign grace of God and salvation. And so this is what Paul is communicating throughout Romans 1, is that what man does with general revelation is they manifest their wickedness, they manifest their sin, and so God gives them over and over and over. And we see elsewhere how God has left the Gentiles to go their way. Um And you continue going throughout Romans 1 into Romans 2 and then to Romans 3. And very clearly, Paul's point is a universality of sin. He's leaving no one exempted. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is true of everyone. So everyone stands condemned. Everyone um, is is under the, the wrath of God apart from Christ. So, but then, you know, what Flowers does is he says, well, that doesn't mean people can't recognize that, confess that, and believe in Christ, well, here's the thing. They are, the scripture defines or describes man as being in bondage to sin, being enslaved to sin, and to, they do the will of, of the devil, and they are hostile in mind. So, the way they think is also in hostility to God. If one is hostility in mind to God, they're certainly not going to seek out God. They're going to run from God, just like Adam and Eve did uh, when they first transgressed the law. Um, 
So this is this is something we have to recognize is this really is an issue of the doctrine of total depravity and inability. We must recognize uh, the sinful nature of man as communicated in Scripture, that man, apart from the sovereign grace of God, uh, will not uh, repent and believe in the gospel because they're enemies of God. They hate God. I think that um, the burden of Romans especially shows more of man's inability than his ability. And when you mention the thing about people can believe in the foolishness of the Quran and fly a plane into a building, but they can't believe in the gospel, let's talk about faith for a moment. Yes, a person who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness can believe in the false lies of the Quran, and they can wholeheartedly follow that and believe in the, the Quran as far as you know, a document that is uninspired that leads a person to act out of their their nature to do sin. Um, that in no way, believing in the Quran is in no way comparison to what it means to be regenerated and actually believe in the gospel. And I want to give a little bit of information from the sermon I just preached this past week because it actually confirmed more in my heart these truths. Um, so let me just give just brief, a, a brief summary here. In Galatians 1, uh, 15 and 16, when Paul's talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus, he uses a very interesting preposition in the Greek text that got me thinking about this whole idea of what it means to be regenerated, what it means to, to truly you know, have faith in Christ. And he said that it pleased God to reveal his son in me. Not to me, but in me. And so, on the road to Damascus, it is true that Jesus Christ was revealed to Paul. Paul saw Jesus in the flesh. Paul saw the audible words of Christ coming to him. Paul was literally blinded. But that's not what Paul says in Galatians. He says, Christ was revealed in me. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to have Christ revealed in you? Well, you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where Paul says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ in the face of the gospel. And so the next verse, Paul says, we preach Christ as Lord. So there has to be the preaching of the gospel to a lost person who's blinded in order for them to hear the facts of the gospel to hear the truth. But then Paul takes it a step further in verse 6 and says, not just do they have to hear the external word, but God has to shine the light in their hearts so they can see the light. In other words, Christ has to be revealed in the heart of a person so that they can truly see. So true Christian saving faith is word and spirit. The word comes to a lost person who is spiritually dead. They have to hear the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They have to know they're a sinner. They have to come to grips with the truth of the gospel. But the inward work of the Holy Spirit has got to reveal Christ in a person, overcoming that deadness, overcoming that blindness, granting them um, illumination in their heart to truly see the gospel of Christ. And then they're able to repent and believe in Christ alone. Repenting and believing in Christ alone as a result of sovereign regeneration is totally different than a lost person believing the facts of the Quran and then acting out of their own heart to do something that, you know, in response to that. I, I, I don't even know why he continues to bring up that people can believe in the Quran, but they can't believe in the Bible. Um, and that's his different argument about the, you know, the Bible alone being sufficient. So I, I've kind of gone on a little rant there. So, but anyway, you know, just doing more, you know, just in sermon prep, it, it became more you know, confirmed in my heart that, you know, and again, I think to be fair to Leighton, he categorically denies total inability. He'll be honest about that. He denies an effectual call. Um, and so if you deny those two things, you know, then you, you've got his view. Right. And just uh, in agreement with what you've been saying, the, the Baptist catechism, I believe this question three says, um, or asks, how may we come to know God? And it says, the light of nature and man in the works of God plainly declare there is a God. So there you have general revelation. 
but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. And there you have special revelation. And that, of course, is the uh, position that we're putting forth. And just kind of by way of last comment on Romans 1, uh, really Paul is setting up a contrast between general and special revelation. So in Romans 1, 16 and 17, you have special revelation. You have the gospel, which he defines as being the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And then in verse 18, you have the introduction of general revelation. What's communicated through general revelation? The wrath of God. Why? Because man suppresses that knowledge by their unrighteousness. And so really what I see it as is Paul is really providing an apologetic for the gospel, an apologetic for missions, for going out into the nations to proclaim the gospel. And this is uh, supported later on in Romans in chapter 10, where he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which of course is the gospel. And so we have to go to them with the gospel because they're not going to come to God through general revelation. They're going to suppress that knowledge that they have in their unrighteousness. One of the things that I want to also address too, and this may be taking us on to a different trajectory, but recently Leighton has been interacting with the Westminster Confession of Faith as well as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And he's basically making a statement that, you know, there's Calvinists out there that are inclusivists, and he'll take the section on effectual calling, um, especially in the Westminster Confession of Faith, section three. Let me just read it here. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. I want to focus on that last phrase there. Elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Historically, when you read commentary on the Westminster Confession and on the Second London Baptist Confession, historical commentary historical understanding in both Reformed Baptist and Presbyterian circles is that that is limited to the mentally incapable. Those who, because of like my son, Zachary, whose special needs, um, he is almost 18 years old and he has got a rare chromosome disorder that makes him autistic and nonverbal. He's mentally incapable. He doesn't understand the facts of the gospel. He can't you know, personally repent and believe because he's, he's mentally incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Uh, what Leighton has done is added a new category into that, in that he lumps in the unevangelized. And so basically says, ah, listen, you Calvinists, you know, don't get on us for being inclusivists because in your own documents, uh, you allow, you know, for people to be saved who are incapable of being outwardly called. And, and he talks about the incapability, not being mental capacity, but the incapability he defines as location. There's a person that's, because of their location in an unreached people group, uh, they're they're incapable of having the outward call of the gospel because, you know, they're in the deep, dark, jungles of Africa. Therefore, you know, God can save those, you know, and so he's added that category into what historically has been simply um, elect people who are mentally incapable of of hearing that. Yeah, and I, w- I would just add that I think, I think that portion of the confession, I think the clear implication in there is that not that uh, those being discussed haven't come under physically speaking, you know, lo- locationally speaking here, um, they haven't come under the the actual preaching of the gospel, but rather that in coming under the preaching of the gospel, they are unable to, resp- to respond because of some uh, physical um, inability. So again, with the, with the case of infants, you know, you could, you could preach the gospel to an infant, an infant is not going to, they don't have the mental capacity to understand that. And that that's that's the context there, and so the same is is true when it says when it brings up this other category of people. It's not speaking of those who, as you mentioned, are in some dark jungle somewhere who have never heard the gospel. No, it's speaking to those who likewise can and have come under the preaching of the gospel, but due to some mental inability, are unable to to respond to it. And and, and let me just give a comment from. A commentary on the Westminster Confession. Um, it says this. I'm quoting from you know the source. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, and may have some common operations of the Spirit, 
yet they never truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men, not professing the Christian religion, be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may, is very pernicious and to be detested. And so this person's saying the exact opposite. If you say that a person is saved um, by you know, living to, according to the light of nature and the law of that religion, to say they're saved is pernicious and to be detested. It's dangerous and it's, it's to be avoided. It's, it's, it's not what the Westminster framers had in mind when they used that term, those incapable of being outwardly called. So, Drew, do you have anything else that you want to work with um, maybe the John MacArthur response to Romans 1? Anything else that you want to maybe ask for clarification um, as, we, as we think about, you know, interacting with this subject? Well, I'm sure within an hour of concluding, something will pop into mind. <laughs> um, but at this moment, I, I think I've pretty much touched on um, uh, all the, I think, critical points, at least, that I wanted to communicate and get across. So I do look forward to, um, you know, interacting with Flowers on this further and, and, you know, getting his feedback and some question or some answers to some of the questions that, that we raised. Yeah. And let me just say this um, to Leighton, because I know you're going to listen to this. We do appreciate you. We appreciate the work that you do. Um, you, you're becoming more and more prolific. It seems like every day you're coming out with new things. And, and, and I can understand the position you're in because obviously from my perspective, it appears like your, your character, your theology is being attacked um, into saying something that you, know, you're, you, you say you don't believe. Um, you're defending those that may have different views and, and you're being misunderstood. And, and we understand that. And we're hope, we hope this podcast has been fair um, and we want to interact with your statements. And so I would just maybe say two things again, uh, to reiterate, you know, number one, could you give a clear gospel presentation and clarify the, the statements you made earlier about what the gospel is? And number two, could you give us some practical flesh and blood examples of what it truly means for a pagan that's never heard the gospel to live up to the light or to respond to whatever revelation they have? Um, those two things would be really helpful um, to, to bring clarification. Point to uh, Cornelius. Yeah, let's let's leave. Yeah, let's leave Cornelius out of that, um, or, or Old Testament saints. Um, but again, I, we want to be fair. We want to represent. We're not saying Leighton's a heretic. We're not saying he's a pluralist. We're not saying that he's off his rocker. Um, I think he's trying to. Um, make things clear, but sometimes in the attempt to make things more clear, there tends to be more mudding of the waters. And I know he's been getting pushback um, because we're in the same Facebook groups and, and things like that. And so this is healthy dialogue. Um, I hope we're not throwing flames at Leighton, but respectfully trying to interact with his statements and not necessarily his character. And you can't point you can't point to uh, Cornelius. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Drew, I appreciate you being on Understanding Christianity. It's always a pleasure to, to interact with you. Uh, I appreciate your insights, your thoughtfulness, uh, your attempt to tackle these difficult issues with precision. And so um, thanks for being on the podcast today. Oh, definitely. Thanks for having me on. And I look forward to possibly doing some more in the future with you. It's always a pleasure to converse with you. So thank you. All right. Thanks, Drew. We'll talk to you next time.